Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net. Let me ask you a question. What's your name? Everyone goes quiet. Do you know what your name means? Do you know why you were given that name? Now, giving names in different cultures takes some wonderfully diverse forms. As you know, I had a friend at college who was from Indonesia. He had one name. Everybody in his context did. His name was Surif, S-U-R-I-F. He didn't have a first name or a last name. That was his name. Had a lot of trouble trying to get to and come and study in America because they said, well, you need to have a surname. What's that? Some names are determined by family. My parents revealed when I was a teenager that there'd been a tradition in our family for years and years that the oldest son was called James, and then his oldest son was called John, and then his oldest son was called James and John and James and John and so on, and then they got to me and no one told them. So they called me Michael. I don't know what happened with my family. Some names are drawn from nature. Some names are given by a senior patriarch or matriarch in the family. Or, for many of you perhaps, you just liked the name. Or maybe you said something like this. Well, when she was born, she just looked like a Sophie. Now, Mike and Mel chose this name. Barnabas. Barnabas. Why? Well, I asked them that question earlier this week, and uh, Mike didn't reply, but I'm assuming that Mel spoke for both of them when she said, he's named after Barnabas in the Bible. We like the meaning of the name, and we thought Barney as a nickname was really cute. We hope and pray that Barney will follow and serve Jesus wholeheartedly and help and encourage others to do the same. In other words, little Barney is named after a man in the Bible called Barnabas. And here is a late Renaissance painting of Barnabas. There he is, uh, healing a man with really great abs. <laughs> now, this Barnabas was actually called Joe. In Acts chapter 4, which we read a few moments ago, it says he's a, a Cypriot Jewish man called Joseph. But the apostles, the leaders of the Christian church, gave him a nickname. They gave him a nickname, Barnabas. And it literally means son of encouragement. Son of encouragement. And it seems to carry with it the sense, the underlying sense of the English word encourage. Encourage, which means to give somebody courage. To give them strength, to give them hope, to give them confidence, to build them up. When they saw Barnabas coming, they said, here's a son of encouragement. That was the impact that he had on other people's lives. Now, I wonder if you ever had a nickname when you were at school or as a child. Uh, some people's nicknames reflect on them in a quite a bad way, don't they? I knew of a chap once whose nickname was Goatface. <laughs> Not a good name. I think he tried to shake it off in adult life. But when they saw this Joseph coming, this, this ordinary Joe, they said, here comes Barnabas the son of encouragement. Now, why did they give him this nickname? We get several glimpses in the Bible into the character of this man, Barnabas, and I want to share just three of those episodes with you today because they show us why he was called Barnabas the Encourager, and I think they challenge us too. In the first episode, we see that he gave 
with no strings attached. In the second episode, we see that he forgave without holding a grudge. And thirdly, we see that he served and got excited about other people's progress. He gave, he forgave, and he served. Barnabas. He gave with no strings attached. Back to Acts chapter 4. The story of the Acts of the Apostles is the story of the early church told by a historian called Luke very, very early in the first century, and it's written based on eyewitness accounts. Luke himself was part of what was going on. And it's, it tells the exciting spread of the church from 120 people who were scared and hiding in an upper room and praying to a movement that swept right through the Roman world. Within three or four centuries, Christianity had gone from being a small persecuted sect through to being the majority religion of the Roman Empire and changed the world as we know it. And Acts is the story of that. But in the early days, when the community was growing, several thousand people all trying to rub along together and get along, they had vast economic needs. There was no welfare state. There was no pension provision. There were no uh, tax credits. Soon there won't be many left in this country either. But, you know, the Christian community stepped up and became a beautiful counterculture. It says in verse 34 here that there was no needy person among them. There was no needy person among them. Now, that's a reality that Karl Marx could only dream of. No needy person. Because they shared. See, these early Christian men and women believed that through Jesus they'd become a family and they lived like it. Everybody contributed. Some people gave with striking generosity. Chief among them was Barney. Here he is in verse 37. It says, verse 36, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, just think about that for a moment. Selling a field, a whole field, that means you're giving away property, real estate. If you give that away, you're not going to get it again. It is a big hit to anyone's portfolio, a field. And he takes all the money, every last penny, and he puts it at the feet of the apostles, the church leaders, and says, you, you give it away to the poor. Now, if I'm honest, I find it easy to be generous with some things and not others. I don't have a problem with tipping 10% or more in a restaurant if the service is good. We love having people round to our house to eat, but we do usually keep the house afterwards. But a field... Now, that's going a step further. That's like giving your car away, or maybe more. It's actually more like owning a house and a flat and selling one and giving all the money away to the poor. Now, what we see here is that Barnabas gives freely. He doesn't seem to view his property as his own. He has a kind of stewardship mentality rather than an ownership mentality. He's thinking, what's mine is not mine. It's been entrusted to me by God to use for other people. Now, people like this give freely of their time, their resources, their talents. They're really giving of themselves. And here's the crucial thing about it. He gave with no strings attached. He didn't give in order to get something back. You know how this works. It's possible to do something that appears to be generous, but in the back of your mind, there's a calculation going on that you're probably going to gain from it. Barnabas freely gives without expecting anything in return. There's no hidden agenda here. 
He's not trying to put credit in the bank so that he can draw some out later. He's not approaching it with a political mindset. You know, he only talks to people if he thinks he can, they're important that he can get something from them. He's not scratching your back so that you'll scratch his. He just gives. Now, the writer of the book of Acts shows the difference between this kind of radical giving and the self-serving kind of giving through this really stark contrast with a couple called Ananias and Sapphira. Now, to be honest, these are probably not the Bible names you are going to choose to give your child. Ananias and Sapphira. Now, these guys have some property too, and they sell it as well. And then the husband comes, and the wife knows all about it, and he puts some money at the apostles' feet and kind of does a big bow and scrape and a flourish. Perhaps he's been inspired by the good reaction that he saw Barnabas getting. But there's a crucial difference going on. Whereas Barnabas gave the whole lot, Ananias is pretending to be really generous. Whereas, in fact, he's skimmed off some of the money for himself. Now, the crucial thing to understand here is it's, it's not that Ananias had to or was supposed to give 100%. It was his property. He could do what he liked with it. But it was that he pretended to be really generous. Whereas the truth was, his gift served himself. See, the motive in Ananias' generosity was gain. He wanted to gain respect, to gain influence, to gain kudos in the community whilst holding on to some of his funds. It's a calculated gift. And the apostles see through it, and it does not end well for Ananias. Now, Barnabas gave with no strings attached because he was, giving him, he was not giving to himself. He was giving to others. Once upon a time, there was a king who ruled over a great nation. In that country, there was a gardener who grew an enormous carrot. He took it to the king and he said, My lord, this is the greatest carrot I've ever grown. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. The king was touched. He discerned the man's heart. So as he turned to go, the king said, Wait. You're clearly a good steward of the earth. I want to give you a farm as a gift, and you can garden it well. So the gardener was amazed and delighted, and he went home rejoicing. But there was a nobleman at the king's court who overheard all of this, and he was thinking to himself, my, if that's what you get for a carrot, what's the king going to give for something better? The next day, the nobleman came before the king, and he brought a handsome black stallion. He bowed low and said, my lord... I breed horses, and this is the greatest horse I've ever bred. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect. And the king discerned his heart. So he said, thank you, took the horse, and dismissed him. As the nobleman turned to go and looked rather perplexed, the king said, let me explain. That gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse Barnabas gave with no strings attached. Now, the second thing we, glimpse we get of Barnabas' character is later on in the book of Acts, and it's in chapter 9. If you want to turn with me, it's page 1103, page 1103, Acts chapter 9, verse 26 and 27. This is about a man called Saul. When Saul came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. 
But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. Now what's going on in this episode here? Saul is the kind of the bad guy. It's like the pantomime baddie of the story so far. He is a high-flying Jewish scholar, a man who was probably touted to be the chief rabbi. He was trained under the, some of the leading minds of his day, and he was a dedicated, zealous religious man. And when he heard about the, Christian, the new Christian faith springing up, he heard about Jesus Christ, he hated it, and he set all in his power, his whole mind, to destroying it and stamping it out. He basically became a religious terrorist who hounded Christians, even to their death. He was responsible for house arrests, victimization, imprisonment, and in some, some cases, even death. The first Christian martyr was a man called Stephen. And as Stephen was being stoned to death, Saul stood by, giving his approval and looking after the coats of those who were stoning Stephen. Now, this same Saul, this same man, turns up in Jerusalem and says he's had a conversion experience. He's found God. He's born again. No, no, listen, listen, he says, I'm really a follower of Jesus too. I've seen the light. I heard a voice on the road to Damascus. Now, how do you feel when someone says they're born again and they've had a Damascus road experience? Really? Ever tempted to feel a bit cynical? What did they feel about Saul? It says here that they were afraid. What if he's putting it on? What if, he's, if it's a trap? Do you really want to get all buddy-buddy with someone who assaulted your community, who destroyed lives, broke up homes and families? Do you want to open up your life to him? Of course not. No one in Jerusalem wants Saul in their house, but Barnabas takes him and brings him to the apostles. He tells them about Saul's journey. He vouches for him. He accepts Saul for who he is now, and he's prepared to overlook the past. You see, Barnabas was prepared to start where Saul was and help him get where he needed to be. He didn't hold the past against him. He didn't think, my, my, what have you done? Barnabas recognized that God deals with people out of grace, not giving us what we deserve, and so should we. Barnabas opened his wallet to the poor, and he opened his heart to Saul, and he was a key player in Saul's rehabilitation, and this Saul whose name was later changed to be Paul, became the greatest thinker, pioneer, and change agent in the history of Christianity. All because Barnabas was able to forgive, to move on, not holding a grudge, to deal with Saul out of grace. Thirdly, and finally, there's an episode a bit later on where we see Barnabas serving, and in this case, actually, uh, it also involves Saul. Sometime later, Christians had traveled out from Jerusalem and Israel, and they traveled to Syria, and some of them went to a place called Antioch, which at that stage was probably the third biggest city in the Roman Empire. It was a major hub. It was an economic, political, and cultural hub. And Christians finally arrived. Turn over with me to Acts chapter 11, verse 20, and we'll pick up the story. Um, actually, we'll start at verse 19. This is page 1105, page 1105. Acts 11, verse 20. 19. And this is a game-changer. It's a game-changing moment in the history of Christianity. It's very subtly told here, so you could miss it. Here's what it says. Now, those who had been, had been scattered by the persecution 
that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Now, what's going on here? So far, the Jewish believers, and Christianity began as a Jewish faith. Jesus was a Jew. The early church leaders were Jewish. They're still thinking very much in their Jewish world mindset. They hadn't really clicked. The penny hasn't dropped that they're going to have to tell the whole world about Jesus Christ. Until this moment, when some people who are anonymous, they don't even get named, tell some Greeks, some non-Jews about Jesus, and they believe. Now, this is incredible. Because to say the least, the Jewish community at that time had some issues with the Gentiles. Gentiles were regarded as unclean. You wouldn't want to touch them. You certainly wouldn't want to have them in your house. You would never eat with them. They eat all sorts of horrible stuff, like hog roasts. Sometimes they were unflatteringly described as dogs. Now, many Jews had built their identity around being distinct from Gentiles. They wouldn't sit down and eat with them or have them in their home. And these Jew-Gentile distinctions are so powerful that the two communities were a world apart until now. Because these first Jewish Christians share the word, share the message about Jesus, and suddenly a whole boatload of non-Jews want to join the church. What are we going to do? All of these unwashed, dodgy, hog-roast-eating Gentiles want to be part of Christianity. What? We'll see what they did. Verse 22, news of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. You see what happens? The person they want to send when they're checking out new movements in the Christian world is Barnabas. He's our man for the job. We know he's an encourager. He's a son of encouragement. He'll build people up. He'll give them confidence and hope. He'll strengthen them. How typical of him. Barnabas. So here he is. It's his big moment. He's the key man in the new church plant in the major city. He's the guy. All these Gentiles are hanging on his every word because he knows his Bible. He's at the center of everything. And these new, young Gentile believers are looking up to him because he's a preacher and a teacher. And at last, Barnabas has a chance to really make a name for himself. So what does he do? Verse 26, 25. Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught a great number of people. Why does he go and get Saul? He knows that Saul's the better teacher. He's the better thinker. He's the great brain. He's the theologian. And from this point on in the story, Saul becomes more and more prominent and Barnabas fades into the background. Does he care? I suspect not, knowing what we know about his character. You see, Barnabas serves, and he gets excited about the progress of other people. He isn't jealous when someone else is doing well. He doesn't nurture a sense of self-pity or, woe is me, if only I had what they've got. He sees what the grace of God has done, and he's glad. 
Then he goes and gets Saul to help build a church. And Antioch became the major hub for Christianity in the early years, became more important even than Jerusalem because of Barnabas. Now, if I'm honest, I find that challenging. I've got two friends who've recently published a book. And whilst I'm pleased for them, there's a little part of me that resonates with Gore Vidal's famous quote, every time a friend succeeds, I die a little. How shameful. What about you? How do you feel when your colleague gets first or second name on the academic paper, even when everyone knows you did a lot of the work? How do you feel when your friend gets married or has a baby? How do you feel when you go around to your friend's new house and realize, A, it's gorgeous, and B, you're never going to be able to afford it? How do you feel when someone close to you gets recognition and praise when you are overlooked? How do you feel? Barnabas served and he got excited about the progress of others. He forgave without holding a grudge. He gave with no strings attached. Now, wouldn't you want to be like that? To be an encourager? To be given that nickname? Barnabas, son of encouragement. What a great name to be given. But to be honest, do we have what it takes? Do you find it in your heart to be like this? To give with no strings attached. To forgive. I'm not holding a grudge. To serve. Be happy about other people's progress. What is your heart's reaction when you're called upon to give of yourself when it costs and when there's nothing in return? When you're called upon to forgive and let go of someone's past and not hold it against them, just to put it to bed, even if they've harmed you. To serve, to pour your time and your energy and resources into something and then share the glory or even become somebody who's a bit minimized. More than that, not just take it on the chin, but be really happy about someone else's progress. Is anyone here feeling the challenge? So where did Joe, a.k.a. Barney, get the power. Don't tell me that he was just like that, that he was born that way. I don't believe it. I think he was just like us because I've been around long enough to know how human beings are wired. By nature, we don't give, forgive, and serve freely. Something must have happened to this Joseph to turn him into Barney. Something must have happened to him to turn him outwards so that his attention and his affections weren't just on himself but were on other people on other people's reputation, on their glory. Something, someone must have worked on his heart to make him a different kind of person. His affections were captured by a love that was greater than the love for himself. And that is, in fact, what had happened. Because this Barnabas knew somebody like this, someone who gave, someone who gave everything he had and never counted the cost, Someone who forgave. Someone who, who would just look at you and know everything you've done and would forgive you for whatever it was. Someone who served. Someone who did not come to be served but to serve and to give his own life for others. That one's name was Jesus Christ. And after he'd encountered him, this man became Barnabas. Because he understood the message of Jesus. And here's that message in a single verse. 
you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. This is at the heart of what we believe here at Grace Church. That's why we call the church Grace. That Jesus Christ was God himself. He lived in infinite splendor and majesty. He lived in a world of perfection and beauty. And yet he came to be one of us, to join himself to our humanity. He came down into the squalor and the dirt and the pain and suffering. He took upon himself our pain, our humanity, our infirmity. And he carried it all with him to a cross where he was rejected and executed. And there he paid for all our sins. He was rich, but for our sake he became poor so that through his poverty we might be welcomed back to God, which is riches indeed. And the better you know this Jesus, the more like him you become. The better you know this Jesus, the more like him you become. The more like him you are that you can give, no strings attached. You can forgive, forgetting the past. You can serve and be really pleased about other people's progress. The better you know this friend, and Savior, the more like him you will be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we've, we've sung, we've read the, the, your word, we've prayed, we've given thanks to you for Barney and for Mike and Mel. And now we want to thank you for something really big, that you didn't spare your own son, Jesus, but sent him down to save us. We thank you for your immense wonderful, inexhaustible grace showered upon people who don't deserve it. And we thank you that you will never stop loving those you've included in Jesus. Thank you and hear our prayers today, we pray. And would you help us to follow you and to become more like him day by day, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more, or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net.